This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Due to the graphic nature of this woman's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder, abuse, and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. In 1934, the Barker Carpus Gang was reportedly operating a criminal hideout in Aurora, Illinois, at the home of their associate, Volney Davis. The infamous gang of robbers, murderers, and kidnappers had split and scattered after their most recent run-in with law enforcement, and their matriarch, Ma Barker, was hiding out in nearby Chicago. One night in April, a knock came at the door of Davis's home. The men were wary. None of them were expecting company. In stumbled two men supporting a bleeding third man in the middle. One of the men cracked a smile and reached out to shake Davis's hand. He apologized for barging in so late in the evening, but he needed some help with his friend. He gestured to the bloody man in the middle. His friend wasn't going to last the night. He would need help burying the body. He said he'd heard of the hideout and knew Doc Barker and Volney Davis would be obliged to help. The men stood, shocked. Not at the request of this midnight stranger, but at his identity. They didn't need to ask the man's name. They'd seen his face on every wanted poster in the state. It was John Dillinger, gangster, bank robber, public enemy number one. If only Ma was there to see how infamous her boys had become. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every week, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Sammy Nye. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And you're listening to Female Criminals. Today, we're continuing our exploration into the life of Ma Barker, 
While some say she was the leader of the infamous Barker Carpus gang, who terrorized the Midwest with robberies, murders, and kidnappings throughout the early 1900s, others insist that she was innocent of all crimes she was accused of. Due to a lack of evidence tying her to any robberies or murders, it's possible that she was only a bystander in the crimes of her four sons, Herman, Lloyd, Doc, and Freddie Barker. Today we'll follow Ma Barker's later years, from her son's increasingly violent criminal escapades to the shocking finale of her 61 years, culminating in a brutal FBI shootout that lasted for more than four hours. If you want to listen to any previous episodes, you can find them and all of ParCast's shows on your favorite podcast directory. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram as at ParCast and on Twitter at Parcast Network. Many of you have asked how you can help the show. If you enjoy the podcast, the best way to help is to leave us a five-star review. Raised in rural Missouri during the time of infamous outlaws like Butch Cassidy and Billy the Kid, Ma Barker, born Arizona Donnie Clark, had a passion for crime stories at an early age. She counted Jesse James amongst her childhood heroes. At age 18, she married George Elias Barker, a poor, uneducated farm laborer. She bore him four sons, Herman, Lloyd, Arthur, who was known as Doc, and Freddie. Her sons were troubled from a young age, getting involved in youth gang activities that included robbery and petty theft. Eventually, the boys escalated to more advanced crimes, like car theft, bank robberies, and murder. It's hard to say which of her sons was the worst criminal. Herman, the eldest, was first arrested at age 21 for highway robbery. He was in and out of prison for years, until he eventually shot a police officer in 1927. At age 34, rather than surrender to the police and be sent back to prison, Herman chose to pull the trigger and end his own life. Lloyd, the second eldest, had a similarly rough start with small-time gang activity when he was younger, but he seemingly cleaned up his act when he joined the military in 1918. Unfortunately, his time on the straight and narrow didn't last, as two years after his honorable discharge, he was arrested for the first time in 1921 at age 23. Then, in 1922, Lloyd was sentenced to 25 years in federal prison for mail theft. Doc, the middle child, was considered to be the most aggressive and violent. He was first arrested for car theft at age 19 in 1918. In 1921, he was arrested after killing a night watchman during a robbery gone wrong. This time, Doc was given a life sentence and sent to prison. Freddie, the youngest Barker boy, was involved in gang activity in the Tulsa, Oklahoma area, where the Barker family lived. In 1926, after an attempted bank robbery, Freddie, then 25 years old, was arrested for the first time and sent to Kansas State Prison. During his time in prison, he met Alvin Carpus, who, after Freddie's release in 1931, would become his partner in the formation of the notorious Barker Carpus Gang. Needless to say, much of the hardship that the boys suffered fell on their mother, Ma Barker, emotionally. Their father, George, was an honest man who despised his son's lives of crime. 
He was especially angry that Ma never punished the boys or taught them to take responsibility for their actions. With strain and tension from the boys' arrests weighing on their marriage, the couple officially split in 1928. When the boys were in jail, Ma spent most of her time writing letters to and visiting policemen, politicians, and judges in an attempt to convince anyone who would listen that her boys were innocent. Ma's level of involvement in her son's crime sprees varies from account to account. Some suggest she had absolutely no involvement and that she only cared for her children, or rather they cared for her, with the money they stole. Others say that she knowingly gave her criminal son safe refuge from police. The wildest accounts suggest that she was a machine gun-wielding psychopath who was the leader of the gang and the organizer of their crimes. It's important to note that there's no evidence linking Ma to any crimes, only secondhand accounts and speculation. But this didn't stop J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI from going after her with the full force of the law. In 1928, 55-year-old Ma Barker was alone. Her husband George had left her. Her eldest son Herman was dead, and the other three were all in prison. It was at this point that Ma reportedly resorted to sleeping around with local men to support herself. With no education, no job, and no means of income, at a time when women had limited economic opportunities, she likely had no other choice but to rely on anyone who would support her, be it for a month, a week, or a night. Let's take a moment to examine the psychology of loneliness and desperation. Please keep in mind, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she's done a lot of research for the show. Thanks, Sammy. In Psychology Today, Dr. Elena Blanco Suarez cites a neurological study done on mice that were separated into two groups. One group was isolated from each other, while the other was allowed to socialize. After a period of time, the mice were introduced to a new mouse. The mice that had been allowed to socialize cared little for the newcomer. Meanwhile, the isolated mice showed remarkably high brain activity in the region that produces dopaminergic and serotonergic neurons. Neurons that are key to emotional well-being and positive mental health. This study suggests that isolated individuals crave social interaction the most, and that motivation is high to search for and re-engage in social interactions in order to maintain good mental health. So in Ma Barker's case, her motivation to have social interactions was at an all-time high, considering that her husband had abandoned her and she had no idea when she would be able to see her imprisoned sons again. It was around 1930 that Ma Barker met Arthur Dunlop in Tulsa, Oklahoma. He was described by some sources as the town drunk. Like George Barker, he was an uneducated farm laborer. Still, he kept Ma company while her boys were away. Though it may not have been a perfect situation, it was good enough for Ma, as she was desperate financially and emotionally. FBI reports describe Ma's life from 1928 to 1930 as miserable, with her living in a dirt floor shack all on her own. When Arthur Dunlop came around, Ma likely jumped at the chance to elevate her situation, if only a little. Census records state Ma and Dunlop were married in 1930. Though it's unconfirmed, we can assume that Ma moved in with Dunlop permanently. So Ma likely made do however she could. 
praying and waiting all the while for her boys to be released, with only Dunlop to keep her company. Her prayers were answered in the spring of 1931, when Freddie was released from Kansas State Prison. He came to visit her, along with his friend Alvin Karpis, who had been released from prison around the same time. Together, the boys, Ma, and Dunlop bought a farmhouse in Thayer, Missouri in the fall of that same year. Though Dunlop bragged to the landlord that he had made a small fortune off oil fields in Oklahoma, the reality was that the money had come from a burglary pulled off by Freddie and Carpus a few months earlier. They had nearly been captured, but both avoided jail sentences. They used the cash to invest in a safe house that doubled as a home for Ma. With everything seemingly in place, the boys began their crime wave with the brand new Barker Carpus gang. It all started with a simple clothing store burglary in December 1931. A simple burglary that led to the murder of the local chief of police, Manley Jackson. Jackson had been assigned to patrol the area surrounding the clothing store that evening when he noticed a suspicious vehicle. He made a note of the vehicle's make and model, but as the burglars returned to the car, he was shot and killed by Freddie Barker. Unfortunately for the barker Carpus gang, the burglary and murder made front-page news, including the details about their car that had been recorded by Jackson before he was shot. The next time Freddie and Carpus took the car in for a routine repair at a local auto shop, it was identified by the repairman, who reported it to the county sheriff. The county sheriff, C.R. Kelly, arrived at the auto shop to investigate, but he was gunned down immediately by Barker and Carpus as he approached the vehicle. Carpus fled in the car while Barker went on foot. Though they were pursued, both men escaped and made it back to the farmhouse. Freddie, Carpus, Ma, and Dunlop left with haste later that day. The police eventually found the car near the farmhouse, which they identified as the Barker Carpus hideout. But by the time they raided the house, its former residents were long gone. In their hurry, the Barkers had abandoned identifying documents, photographs, and much of the merchandise stolen in the burglary that got them into the mess in the first place. There was no question that they'd been there just a few days before. The only matter now was to figure out where they went. An interesting point to note here is that the local sheriff's widow was made interim sheriff after he was murdered by Freddie and Carpus at the auto shop. One of her first appointed actions was to offer rewards for the arrest and conviction of the Barker Carpus gang members, including $100 for old lady Ari Barker, mother of Fred Barker. Today, that $100 would be $1,600. This notice was likely the first time law enforcement acknowledged Ma Barker, but it certainly wouldn't be the last. We'll see what happens next after a quick break. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. 
Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Now back to the story. Ma Barker had captured the attention of authorities in late 1931, thanks to the burglary and double homicide committed by her youngest son, Freddie, and his associate, Alvin Karpus. Though she had no known part in their crime, she had been named a co-conspirator, either because she had provided her criminal son safe refuge in her home, or because the stolen merchandise was found there while the police raided her farmhouse. We can safely assume that at this point, Ma was clearly aware of her son's criminal activities, despite the lack of clear evidence that she was actually involved. Whether she was knowingly profiting off her son's crimes by using the stolen money, or just following him from city to city out of motherly love as he went on his crime sprees, we can't be certain. Regardless, after this major exposure to law enforcement, she clung tightly to her youngest son, either to protect him, herself, or both. After narrowly escaping from the authorities who raided Ma's farmhouse, the gang hid out with their friend Herbert Farmer in Joplin, Missouri, three hours west of the farmhouse in Thayer. Farmer was happy to take in the Barkers, but his ultimate suggestion was that the gang permanently relocate to St. Paul, Minnesota, a known haven for criminals given the city's corrupt police force. An account of Ma Barker's life written by Chris Enns suggests that by 1931, well into the Prohibition era, St. Paul had become an epicenter for bootlegging. It was close to the Canadian border, and the area had rich land resources and plentiful water to make bootleg liquor. Public officials and police were eager to accept bribes in exchange for looking the other way when it came to minor crimes, though it was understood that no murder or robbery was to take place within city limits. Ma, Dunlop, Freddie, Carpus, and the rest of the gang relocated to St. Paul in early 1932. They rented a place under the disguise as the Anderson family and settled in nicely. They spent much of their time at the notorious Green Lantern Tavern, where gangsters like George Machine Gun Kelly and Frank Jelly Nash were considered regulars. The Andersons became known as a relatively normal family in the area. Freddie and Carpus pulled off small-time burglaries and made friends with other local criminals, while Ma looked after the landlady's granddaughter. Dunlop drank bootleg whiskey with the landlady's son, who walked Ma's dog for some petty cash. Things were as normal as possible for the criminal family. That is until Freddie and Carpus helped rob Minneapolis's National Bank in the spring of 1932. The gang made off with nearly $270,000 in cash and bonds. Today, that would be nearly $5 million. Unfortunately, the landlady's son identified Freddie and Carpus after spotting their mugshots in a wanted ad from the robbery and double homicide they committed in Missouri. Realizing that they were not in fact the Anderson family, 
but actually the infamous Barker Carpus gang, he alerted the authorities. But the corrupt chief of police warned the Barkers, who made it out of the home ahead of the police once again. At this point, the gang grew suspicious of one another, unsure of who'd had the nerve to rat them out to the police. Freddie and Carpus blamed it on Ma's husband, the often whiskey-drunk Arthur Dunlop, who had a habit of oversharing at the local speakeasy. As the group headed toward Kansas, they stopped over in Wisconsin, shooting Dunlop in the head at the edge of Fremstad Lake. Though there is no evidence proving that Ma was aware of or agreed to the plan to kill Dunlop, reports do suggest that she had no grand reaction to the murder of her husband at the hands of her own son. She simply moved on, without any signs of remorse for what had happened. People who lack guilt or remorse are sometimes identified as sociopaths, which is certainly how the FBI and media painted Ma to be. However, Ma was likely not a sociopath. She was known to show great feeling towards her children. So it's possible that she simply weighed her loyalty to her son over her feelings for her husband. This is similar to how her first relationship with George Barker operated. She reserved her feelings almost entirely for her children, emotionally ignoring her husband. We can't accurately say what exactly Ma's feelings were after the death of Arthur Dunlop, but it's likely that she was more concerned for her son than her husband. Perhaps she was more upset by Arthur having supposedly tipped off the police than she was by her son and his gang killing him in retaliation. It's important to remember that, to Ma, her son was her world. Her darkest time was when all three of her surviving children were in prison. Now that she had one of them out and with her, she would do anything to protect him from going back. Whether this was truly out of love for her son or out of concern for her own financial situation, or some mix of both, we can't be certain. And so the Barker Carpus gang moved on, with a newly single Ma in tow. After several bank robberies throughout Kansas in mid-1932, the gang caught word that Doc, the middle Barker son, was about to be released after 11 years in prison, where he had been serving a life sentence for murder. If this seems like a lenient sentence to serve for murder, that's because it is. Today, a prisoner serving a life sentence for murder can only apply for parole after 25 years. But this was a different time. There are many possible reasons why Doc could have been paroled. Corrupt officials, mishandling of evidence before the trial, or perhaps he just hired a good lawyer to work on his appeal case. Regardless of the reason why, in the fall of 1932, Doc, then 33 years old, was paroled. He joined Ma, then 59 years old, Freddie, who was 31, and Alvin Carpus, age 25, as they traveled across Kansas and Nebraska, committing a string of bank robberies. But there was a problem. With every robbery, the gang was constantly losing members. They never knew who would have a gun and when police would show up on the scene, with a high risk of capture or death by shooting, the three men decided on a new tactic for making money. Though there are no official records for this specific period, by the end of the Barker Carpus Gang's reign of terror in 1935, 19 of their associates were arrested, four were killed by police, and three were killed by other gangs. 
Rather than continue to risk their lives in uncontrolled situations, they resorted to kidnapping rich and prominent businessmen, situations where they could call the shots from start to finish with little interference. According to FBI reports, on a warm summer evening in 1933, William A. Ham Jr., the 38-year-old president of Theodore Ham's Brewing Company, was exiting his office in St. Paul when he was grabbed by four hooded men. He was pushed into the back of a car and driven to Wisconsin, where he was forced to sign four ransom notes demanding over $100,000 for his safe return. That would be nearly $2 million today. Ham was moved to a hideout in Illinois until the ransom was paid, after which he was released near Wyoming, Minnesota. Everything seemingly went off without a hitch. No one got hurt. No one knew who was responsible. That is, until the FBI crime lab used a then-state-of-the-art technology, unbeknownst to the Barkers and Carpus. Now called latent finger identification, this technology can raise fingerprints from surfaces that couldn't traditionally be dusted for prints. The ransom notes were found to be covered in the prints of Alvin Carpus and Doc Barker. The FBI was back on the trail of the Barker-Carpus gang. After the seemingly successful kidnapping, the gang was blissfully unaware that the FBI was gaining on them. They briefly went back to robberies in St. Paul and killed two policemen in cold blood. It seems like the Barkers' crimes had escalated in terms of violence and sheer audacity. From what we've learned about the Barkers, they had only used violence before when it was absolutely necessary to avoid being killed or arrested. But... After meeting Alvin Karpis and forming the Barker-Karpis gang, random violence became a lot more commonplace for them, especially with regards to the murders of policemen. Well, according to a study on gang violence done in March 2011 by the UK's Ministry of Justice, there are several reasons why violence is more often associated with gangs than with individual criminals. First, we need to distinguish between violence meant for protection and unnecessary violence. While some of the violent acts perpetrated by the Barker-Karpis gang were done out of fear of being caught or as a means to escape, this study suggests that gangs also commit unnecessary violence as a way to gain approval or respect from within the gang. In addition, the study suggests violence could be used as a means of gaining recognition or respect from outside organizations, be it from the police or rival gangs. So it's likely that the Barkers got more violent after forming the Barker-Karpus gang in order to gain status or approval from their associates and from others. I wonder how Ma, who in 1933 was turning 60 years old, felt about this increase in violence. We can only assume that she was largely unaware of it. Or if she was aware, she likely didn't encourage it. She probably simply tolerated it, believing her boys did what they had to do to survive. Unfortunately, there's little information available about the inner workings of the gang at the time, as most of the members died before they were able to share any accounts. The exception to this is Alvin Karpis, who wrote a memoir about his time in the Barker Karpis gang. He speaks of Ma occasionally, commenting that she was often a cranky woman when it came to her sons. According to Karpis, Ma refused to allow her sons to date or downright ignored their girlfriends if they were brought around to her residence. Freddie said Ma treated Karpis the best, never nagging him or getting on his case. 
Though it's unconfirmed, the boys reportedly gave Ma her own private apartment in either St. Paul or Chicago around 1933, separate from the rest of the gang. This was likely due to fear for Ma's safety after their many police run-ins, as well as an attempt by the boys to get away from her overbearing nature. It's sad to imagine Ma alone, waiting for her boys to check in on her, passing the time listening to the radio and playing with jigsaw puzzles. Well, on the one hand, you want to have sympathy for Ma, who clearly suffers from a fear of abandonment after spending years alone without her husband or children. Her grip on her children likely tightened after their release from prison, causing her to want to take control of how they live their lives so she could prevent them from leaving her again. As for her children, the psychological effects that overbearing parents have on their children are many. One 2015 article from The Independent cites a psychological study at University College London on the relationships between children of overbearing parents and psychological issues later in life. Overall, the children of overbearing parents who encourage their children to be dependent on them reported low scores on surveys of happiness and general well-being. So the desperate lengths Ma went to to protect her sons may have actually caused them psychological harm in the long run. Mm -hmm. Another study done in 2014 by the University of Virginia suggests that children of overbearing parents often have difficulty working out disagreements later in life, not to mention the effects on romantic relationships, as reported by author and counselor Latoya Newman. Newman writes that men who grow up with overbearing mothers often lie and go out of their way to placate their mothers as adults, even if it means placing her above their romantic partners. As sad as it sounds, it makes sense that the Barker sons likely wanted to get away from their mother's controlling influence so that they could live their own lives and form their own romantic relationships. Unfortunately, the boys had much bigger problems to worry about than Ma's control issues. The FBI was closely following the trail of dead bodies that was leading right up to the Barker's door. And one last grand crime was about to take place that would prove to be the end of the Barker Carpus gang and Ma herself, once and for all. We'll be back to explore the Barker Carpus gang's downfall after a short break. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Now, back to the story. In 1934, Freddie and Doc Barker, Ma Barker's two youngest sons, were riding the high of one successful kidnapping ransom and two successful robberies, 
With the help of their partner, Alvin Karpis, the Barker Karpis gang had terrorized most of the Midwest into submission. Meanwhile, their elder brother Lloyd Barker was less than halfway through his 25-year sentence for mail theft, a crime he'd committed in 1922. Some would count him lucky, considering the eventual fates of the other Barkers. Looking for another big-ticket crime, in 1934, the Barkers and Carpus decided to kidnap Edward G. Bramer, the 34-year-old president of Commercial State Bank and son of the millionaire owner of the Jacob Schmidt Brewing Company. It was a typical January day for Bramer, who had just dropped off his daughter at school in his Lincoln sedan. Suddenly, he found his car boxed in from the front and behind by two other black sedans. Out rushed Doc Barker and his associate Volney Davis, who pointed their guns at Bramer and told him not to move. Though he struggled briefly, he was quickly subdued. The three black sedans drove quietly down the street, one driven by Barker and Davis with Bramer tied up in the back, and two with the other gang members following close behind. Miraculously, no witnesses were left behind. Bramer was kept in a safe house located in a Chicago suburb for nearly a month. Tensions ran high within the gang as Bramer continuously cried and complained. Freddie threatened to kill Bramer, but Doc and Carpus were able to convince him not to. Eventually, Bramer's family and the FBI agreed to the complex demands of the Barkers and Carpus, and they handed over $200,000 for Bramer's release in early February 1934, the equivalent of over $3.7 million today. Though the gang was enthused with their latest success, this act would ultimately spell their doom. With their new understanding of the FBI's fingerprinting technology, Carpus insisted Doc and Freddie wear gloves in handling everything related to the kidnapping. Unfortunately, Doc had not done so, which led to the authorities finding his prints and tying him and the Barker Carpus gang to the crime. The full force of the FBI was used to track down the Barkers and Carpus. It wouldn't be an easy task. Rumors about the gang's location varied wildly. Though it's unlikely, some reports suggest that Ma, Freddie, and Carpus fled to Cuba in the hopes of laundering the ransom money and hiding out there. However, the most plausible explanation was that for much of 1934, Ma remained in Chicago in an apartment given to her by Freddie. Doc also remained in the Chicago area, at the home of his associate Volney Davis. They ran into infamous outlaw John Dillinger and his men one spring night in 1934, after Dillinger's associate John Hamilton was wounded. Dillinger had known of the safe house operated by Davis, and he requested help with the burial of Hamilton when he passed away soon after. Doc and Davis happily obliged. Meanwhile, Freddie and Carpus headed to Ohio to hide out. Eventually, Ma and Freddie relocated to Oklawaha, Florida, where they hid out in a little house on Lake Weir. In January 1935, Doc was found in Chicago and arrested for his part in the kidnappings of William Hamm and Edward Bramer. He was originally sent to Leavenworth Federal Penitentiary with a life sentence and was eventually relocated to Alcatraz. While raiding Doc's apartment, the FBI found a letter addressed to Doc with mentions of Gator Joe, a local restaurant on Lake Weir. 
the authorities quickly investigated the area, eventually tracking down a two-story white clapboard house rented by a Mr. and Mrs. Blackburn. In reality, the FBI realized the home was occupied by Ma and Freddie Barker. At around 7 in the morning on January 16, 1935, a strike team of FBI agents surrounded the house. Six men headed to the west side of the property, while four agents covered the back of the house. Two men blocked traffic on a nearby road, and two more headed to the nearest neighbor's house. The lead agent, Earl Connolly, reportedly shouted, quote, Fred Barker, come out. We are Department of Justice agents, and we have the house surrounded. After 20 minutes of more shouting, met with nothing but silence, the agents threw tear gas grenades at the house. They missed, and the gas quickly filled the yard instead. Reports suggest a woman's voice could be heard from inside the house saying, what are you going to do? Finally, they heard the same woman say, all right, go ahead. Machine guns were fired from a second-story window, which were answered by more gunfire from the agents. Agents ran for more ammo and tear gas, noticing that a crowd of spectators had gathered in the woods and on the road. The battle raged on for hours in starts and stops. At one point, a neighbor's headboard was struck by a stray bullet. As she attempted to run away with her daughter, an agent mistook her for Ma Barker and tried to shoot her. Luckily, the woman and her daughter made it to safety. Eventually, the house fell silent. Over 1,500 rounds of ammunition had been fired at the house from agents. Reports vary on the exact time, but agents eventually sent a man in to investigate the house. One newspaper suggested that at noon, the property's caretaker was made to enter, shouting, quote, it's okay, Ma, it's me. They're making me do this, end quote. When FBI agents stormed the house, guns at the ready, they found Freddie Barker, then age 34, dead in an upstairs bedroom. He had reportedly been hit in the chest 11 times, along with three times in the head. Ma, then age 61, was crumpled beside him with a single gunshot wound to the head. FBI reports stated that Ma was holding a gun in her hand, while other reports suggest that two guns, a machine gun and a 45 automatic pistol, were lying on the floor between Freddie and Ma. The bodies were eventually laid to rest next to Ma's eldest son, Herman Barker, who was buried in an Oklahoma cemetery after his suicide. After newspapers reported on the shootout, J. Edgar Hoover released statements calling Ma Barker, quote, the most vicious, dangerous, and resourceful criminal brain of the last decade, end quote, and naming her as the criminal mastermind behind the Barker Carpus gang. The media ran with this story, dubbing her Bloody Ma Barker. One newspaper headline read, Ma Barker, brains of gang reported killed with Fred Barker, son, in furious fray. Whether it was true or not, she would go down in history as an infamous, insidious character, with numerous movies, cartoons, and songs describing her bloody rampage. As for the rest of the Barkers, Lloyd was finally released from prison in October 1938, three years after the death of Ma and Freddie. He found a normal job as a restaurant manager in Denver, married, and had four children. 
Unfortunately, Lloyd's wife suffered from mental health problems and accidentally killed him with a shotgun in 1949. He was 51 years old. Doc attempted to escape from Alcatraz in 1939 with four other inmates. They made it out of the prison cell blocks and down to the shore of the island, where prison guards spotted them and opened fire. Doc Barker died of his injuries later that day at age 40. With all the Barkers dead or in prison, Alvin Karpis was the last remaining public enemy on J. Edgar Hoover's list. He was eventually found in New Orleans in 1936 and sentenced to life in prison. Karpis was eventually released on parole in 1969, and he lived peacefully until his death in 1979 at age 72. With the exception of Alvin Karpis, all of the Barker Karpis gang members met untimely demises, including Ma herself. What's tragic is that many claim Ma Barker wasn't even a criminal, merely an innocent casualty at the hands of the FBI. Multiple surviving gang members and affiliates, including Alvin Karpis himself, spoke of Ma as a loving mother who was always sent away during the planning and execution of crimes so she wouldn't get involved. One criminal affiliate even suggested that Ma could hardly plan breakfast, let alone a crime. While the depictions of Ma Barker as a bloodthirsty criminal continue to this day, it's significantly more likely that she was just a well-intentioned mother who struggled to keep her four rowdy boys in line. Today, most FBI records state that Ma was not involved in the crimes, and it's implied that J. Edgar Hoover simply made up the tall tale of her as a criminal mastermind to salvage the FBI's reputation after they shot and killed a 61-year-old mother. It's important to remember that in the 1930s, even more so than today, it was difficult for most people to imagine a woman being a violent criminal. Recent statistics from Donahue and SOA Attorneys at Law suggest that women are 58% less likely than men to be sentenced to prison and that women, on average, receive shorter prison sentences when it comes to theft crimes. The common perception is that women aren't capable of being as violent as men. Based on the evidence, Ma was, at best, an accomplice who provided her sons with safe refuge, but had no part in planning or executing the gang's crimes. But to combat the public perception that they'd killed an innocent, defenseless woman, the FBI chose to portray Ma as an over-the-top, bloodthirsty monster. Remember that Ma Barker was born to a poor family, grew up uneducated, married at age 18, and bore four sons soon thereafter. Her children were all she had in this life. She protected them, became codependent with them, and did not discipline them or teach them how to be honest men. And for the crime of being too lenient a parent, she was executed by the FBI alongside her hardened criminal son. So, did Ma Barker receive unfair treatment? We'll let you decide. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. You can find more Female Criminals and all of Parcast podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast directory. Many of you have asked how to help the show. And if you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. We'll see you next time.
Female Criminals Was Created by Max Cutler is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Carly Madden and Maggie Admire. Female Criminals is written by Margot Perkins and stars Sammy Nye and Vanessa Richardson. (laughs) 